0: to embark on a potentially very dangerous topic um, because there are very strong passions that we're dealing with and it is very um, understandable why they exist. Uh, They exist because we have staked so much on an accurate Bible that um, people will fight for it, and rightly so. And I uh, would not want you to think in any way that we are denigrating that, Um, but what it has formed is bodies within the church that are more committed to their particular English version or their particular canon of scripture then they are to the lord and it becomes a god of its own. And so tonight we are going to as the board shows you try to figure out how divine revelation got from god to your lap. That process, that not one process but many processes. So there's lots of them. And we are going to be Trying to deal with this, not just from a theological standpoint, we are going to look at the theology involved here, and we're going to look at some passages tonight and throughout the period of our study, but also from a very practical level. And um, this may take you into some very uncomfortable territory. Uh, you might say, "Well, I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Aramaic. I'm I'm not proficient at this." And and it also is going to take you into the Possibility of of uh, doubt, and that's certainly not my goal, my objective. That you doubt God's word, rather, I believe that a thorough study and an honest study should give you confidence in God's word. That is, that God has shown us truth; He has communicated it to us in such a fashion that we can know that God um, has a message for us. We can know what that message is, and we can respond to it. We can build our theology, our belief system upon it, and that I want to affirm again and again, even in the midst of our study. We are not really going to focus extensively on your English Bible, I think we've almost done too much in that respect. We are going to address it because that's the language that we are speaking, that we are familiar with, and that's the the Bible on your lap. So we are going to get to something closer to this area um, of the lower end of our perspective, of our span. Um, But too little has been done in our churches to educate ourselves on the other end of the preservation of God's word of how it was given, how it was identified and preserved, who was involved, what means was there to do so. Um, And we'll do that within the context, certainly, of our doctrinal statement that holds to the authoritative position God's Word has. We are not going to undermine that whatsoever. But in your mind, you may say, well, if we do this, then we're also doing this. And that correlation i want to um, address now and all the way through is that i do not want you to see me as attacking your bible your favorite version um, the english bible that is not my intention our intention rather is that we have a better understanding of what it is that god has revealed to us Um, and sometimes that requires us to get out of our comfort zone Each week, I I could take one week and just lay a whole bunch of stuff on you and send you out here swirling, and I don't want to do that. Um, So each week, I'm going to give you a very specific example, and sometimes an example of something that's not in your Bible and why it's not in your Bible and why you probably should be familiar with it, even though it's not in your Bible, because it is in other people's Bibles. We're also going to deal with some things that might uh, need to, that, that, that uh, might be in your Bibles that other people question, and we're going to deal with that. And so later on, we're going to get down to some aspects of textual criticism. And I think the reason we need to be alerted to textual criticism at the other end of this, we're going to be at the beginning end, early, is because much of what is shaping modern theology and modern Christianity has been derived from um, the camp that are called textual critics. And we're going to talk a little bit about defining some of these down as we go through this. So this is a bit of a, of a big chunk that we're dealing with. And frankly, these are some things that were not even fully handled for me in seminary. Um, they just weren't addressed. We started much later. We started really um, into the English Bibles. Um, we had some charts or something we had to memorize and know. But in terms of really understanding these, that wasn't really required, and I don't know that it was effectively communicated, at least not in the coursework that I followed, um, which, granted, was more ministerial than it was um, philosophical or theological. Um, And so, uh, let's just begin by understanding what we're up against. Um, Books have been written, many, many books have been written about how we got our Bible and defending various translations. And so I brought three. I brought three books just to give you the range of defending translation work. And I want you to understand that um, I do not want to communicate to you that I think that one or more or all or any of these men are ungodly in their perspective. They are each somewhat myopic, which means they can only see right what they want to see but uh, we have these, and these are just representatives. I have several of each category in my library, and um, I've reread several of them in the last two weeks. But uh, we have the body of people that uh, God wrote only one Bible. And that uh, would think would be a defense against false teachers but it, or false revelation in terms of, of uh, other, others like Mormonism or things like that, that that claim to add to Scripture, but it's not. It's a defense of the King James as the only English version available. I have a good handful of books like this uh, in my library. I've read their position, I know it, there aren't any surprises in their uh, descriptions and why, and he is adamantly defending that as this is the only version that is, that is God's word in the English language, period, end of discussion, um, the King James. And so these people are very adamant about that, and that's okay. Um, he uses nothing but the King James in his ministry. He is familiar with it, grown up with it, and has um, probably very limited exposure outside of that, from what I can tell in the readings like that. But they are not uneducated. They are not ignorant. uh, They aren't stupid people. Uh, And to take them at that and to misstate their position is just egregious. Um, It just shouldn't be happening. So then I have another one. Here's another book, uh, The Bible in Translation. And um, he is a proponent of our modern translations, not the King James Make some statements, actually, that uh, demonstrate the weaknesses of the King James, uh, overstates them, in fact, and goes to great length to demonstrate that. Why? Well, if I look at his scenario, you find out it doesn't tell you here, but uh, until the very end thing is he was chairman of the translation committee for one of those new translations. So... Does he have a vested interest? Of course he does. does. he have a vested interest in new translations? Because he's the chairman of a translation committee for one of those new translations. And that you will find about most of these authors is they have a vested interest in them. And so he is makes some statements that uh, makes it sound like the King James is very flawed and faulty and, and uh, we need to have superior stuff. He makes statements... Um, in direct opposition to this book. And, and so you have that perspective. Then you have um, this gentleman, the Eastern Orthodox, tr- Old Testament, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and ones like him. This is just dealing with the Old Testament. But, uh, and he is Eastern Orthodox, and which has a very different Bible. Um, I also have some about the Roman scriptures. Um, and their derivation, derivation, where they came from, um, and so he is very committed to that, and which means that he is not committed to your Bible, and he has always learned from it, taught from it. Professor um, knows the languages. All these guys know the languages: Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, they know them. They're very proficient in them, but they all come to very different positions. All are godly men, from what I can tell. All want to put forward the message of Scripture and are proponents of it. All speak of the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and define that. All speak to those issues, but all have very different perspectives on translation work and the preservation of Scripture and how it was done. So I just want to share that with you so that you understand um, what we're dealing with is very real in Christianity. You have been largely isolated, or I should say insulated from, I don't know that you're isolated with, with computers and all that, I don't think anyone's isolated from anything. Um, but you're insulated from because it's not in your tradition. Um, That is, it's not um, in your circle of study and influence to really know what those positions are. Maybe some of you have come out of Catholicism, and so you know that standard. You say, well, they have some extra books in their Bible, um, and we're going to address that. We're going to address canon a little bit. Canon is is the idea of which books are and which books do not belong in your copy of the Bible, and we're going to address some of that as well. But tonight, I really want to look at several principles and uh, try to get us to start to look into this is something worth investigating. And to start that, I really want to talk about the, the people involved in the process. And because uh, I don't think we really appreciate it very much. How does it go from God to me? How did it get here and who are responsible for it and at what points do we consider the necessity of divine intervention, that is divine activity, to uh, secure that for me. Uh, And it's not just necessarily your lap, Um, for many people it's not their lap because they don't have a copy of God's word, either it's not readily available, they can't afford it or they've never been exposed to it, sometimes it's not your lap but your ear. Because they hear it, long before they ever have exposure to reading it, they hear God's Word. And uh, that's true for a surprising number of people in our churches who have never actually read the Bible. They've read portions of it, but they really are totally dependent upon their church to provide it. And there were times in history, of course, when that was the only way a lay person had access to God's Word, was to hear it, because no one was allowed legally to possess one. Um, and so... Uh, we're going to talk about that. So let's talk about the people. So we have God, and now we know that God reveals Himself to some people. And so um, I'm going to use the word authors, and I'm not negating the fact that God is the author of God's of His Word. It is His Word, um, and thus as the the one that breathes it out, He is the one from its source when we talk, when you read through your Bibles, you'll look at, well, who authored this? And I'm going to use that very carefully because I want to distinguish that from the writers of Scripture. And it took writers as well. And uh, right away, you're already having some cognitive dissonance. You're saying, wait a minute, he is saying that there's authors and writers and they're not the same? That's exactly what I'm saying, that on many occasions they are not the same person. That the author and the writer is not the same. Let's go, if you will, with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter. And uh, if you knew I was going to be studying the Bible, you knew I would be getting to this passage pretty quickly. And uh, I'm going to start out 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, Let's back up to verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I think one of the first things that I want you to recognize is that overwhelmingly, the vast majority of your Bible was not written first, but spoken first. Um, And so as we go through Jeremiah, what does God say? Go to these people and write this down? No. He says, go and speak to the people. Thus says the Lord. And so a vast majority of your scriptures were actually spoken by its author and had a writer who may or may not have been the speaker. Um, We have, even in the New Testament, that is the case. Granted, uh, you know, in the Gospels, we overwhelmingly have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written by, because these were written narratives, not spoken, Um, but there is evidence that they had some sources behind them that were orally transferred from person to person, and so we we have witnesses, but they have, they were the writers as well as the authors. But then we have a guy named Paul comes along, and how many books did he write? Ah, how many books did he author? Well, we're not sure about that either. Let's see, I've got to add them up. Uh, come on. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, Thessalonians, Philemon, he- oh wait, are we into Philemon? 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. What are we up to? 14? Are we getting close? And then there's a 3rd Corinthians somewhere, a lost Corinthian letter. We don't know if it's inspired or not. Right? How many of those did he author? All of them. How many did he write? Well, he speaks in in one letter that says, well, at this point in in this epistle, I have now taken up the pen myself. And only the last few verses of that book were actually written by him. They were penned by someone else. He was using what we call an amanuensis, which is just a fancy Greek word for a secretary. And that's why within Israel, what did we have? In the leadership of Israel, we had... Pharisees, Sadducees, we had teachers of the law and scribes. And the scribal office, and I'm going to use the word office, within Israel was a very important one. And the fact remains is that what the prophets did on the majority was they spoke the word of God. Now the Torah, in terms of what Moses wrote down... Um, certainly the Genesis account is, is necessarily revelatory uh, where he wrote it out. And we, But we know at least a portion of the Torah could not have been written by Moses because he was dead. It's really hard to write down what happens after you died. But we have that. And so we recognize that the book of Joshua, did Joshua write the book of Joshua? There's really no evidence that he wrote it But he is certainly the main character of that book. Um, The likelihood is is that Israel assigned scribe or scribes. So we can put the word scribe here into writers if that makes you feel a little better. Let's go ahead and do that. I'll erase writers and we'll put scribes. So we have people that wrote down what the prophet spoke. They wrote down what the apostle spoke. Uh, And thus Mark... um, may very well, we we attribute most of the Gospel of Mark to some source. Uh, Usually they source it to Peter. We have the Gospel of Luke. Well, what source did he, he was an author, but he also had sources that he used, that he was hearing these reports and these things, because he wasn't living there at the time. And so certainly he had those that spoke it, but he had inspiration as well from God that what he wrote as a scribe, of what he heard was trustworthy. So we have an accuracy there. So, just to get the original, this is just to give us the original, we have already evidence of a dilemma that we aren't just dealing with one person, but we're dealing maybe with two, three, or four people. Um, Depending upon how many scribes are involved, um, imagine over Jeremiah's lifespan, um, if, if he didn't write those words himself and used a scribe, uh, the possibility of using multiples. And so we have um, certainly a portion of Daniel we know was written by scribes because there's no way the king sat down and wrote that letter. He spoke it and it was written down. He made a decree, oral decree, And we talk about much of the Old Testament particularly as being oral tradition. That it was passed down orally, generationally. And so Moses certainly had God um, giving him revelation. But in the midst of that was this oral tradition that was really passed down. So did Jacob have any revelation outside of his... Certainly. He would have had the oral revelation that God had given to Adam to uh, uh, Shem, Seth, to um, all those in his lineage, to Noah, he would have had all that orally given to him. And it would have been passed down generationally uh, and Moses becomes the scribe, essentially, of what is given as revelation by God to others. And so we have... Um, God participating, um, and we're going to which words we want to use for which people is what we're going to really try to nail down tonight, a little bit. So after scribe authors and scribes, well, that's the original. So the next thing we need to make sure we get it all the way down to us thousands of years later is we're going to have to have copyists, right? Copyists. We're going to have to have people copying it down. Um, that once we have a written uh, written down of what the prophet said, uh, and by the way, there are some e- examples where the authors didn't say but write. Remember John, where God says, write this down, and then he says, don't write this down. So John was obviously writing down his revelation as he was given it, and uh, that could very easily be the condition of others as well. Um, but overwhelmingly most of it is, here's what the word of the Lord said, and this is what Jeremiah said to the people. This is what Ezekiah, Isaiah spoke in the hearing of the people. But you're going to have to have copyists. You're going to have people that are going to be faithfully copying down what these original scribes have written uh, of what was originally spoken. So let me ask you a question. Um, no, I'm not going to ask the question yet. Never mind. Uh, by the way it's interesting that um, is Jesus an author of scripture in a practical sense not in terms of his role as God did he write any scriptures did he write them he authored them because he spoke sermons someone copied them down does that surprise you I hope that doesn't surprise you Um, it surprised you because of your experience none of you write down every word I say you trust the multimedia to catch every word, and, um, and I can listen to it again, but uh, uh, copying down every word a pastor speaks is, at this point, almost unheard of. I have on one shelf of my library every sermon Charles Spurgeon preached. Every sermon single one, every word of every one of his sermons. Why? I don't know if he wrote them down and read them or not. The indication is that that wasn't the case. Um, Why do we have every word of every sermon he wrote? Because in his congregation, every service were scribes. Well, they were newspaper men. And they wrote down every word. Why? Because on Monday morning, Charles Spurgeon's sermons were published in the London Times in full, unabbreviated. And so, um, it, it's kind of interesting because if you read that text, you can actually see the, they didn't, they had spelling errors and syntax, but but they wrote down and they copied it and they wrote it out. And the same with Jesus. He spoke, So, he is an author of much scripture, but he didn't write it. And so, our idea that, well, Mark authored this, well, he didn't really author it. What he is writing down is the sermon that Jesus gave. He is really the author, and I don't think Mark would stand here and take credit for that. He is the scribe that wrote down what Jesus preached. And uh, certainly, we have, again, Holy Spirit help. So we come to copyists, and copyists because we know that, that uh, paper, papyrus, things like that wear out, even stones. Uh, you write it in stone, it's still going to wear out eventually. Uh, and so we need copyists. We need copyists for preservation because these wear out, but also for multiplication, right? Because we want to disseminate this to more people. All right. So when we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, well, Jeremiah 29 isn't a sermon, it's a letter. So Jeremiah had to have written that. And it got sent to Babylon. And so the Babylonian Jews received that, and now what are they going to do with it? Well, they can read it aloud in the synagogue uh, or to the people, but they also would have had copyists that copied it and disseminated it. We know that's how the scriptures got out, were copyists. And so they had to be involved. And then, so now that we have copies. somewhere along the line, um, that's not quite going to be enough to reach the world. Our mandate was that we reach the world. And so somewhere along there, you're going to need, and I hesitate what what order, I've been working on the order here, so I'm going to put, because this is how it actually happened, We're going to need translators. Right? Because you guys don't know Hebrew. And neither did a lot of the Babylonians. And neither did a lot of the Greeks. They didn't know Hebrew. And so if you're going to reach your Greeks, Alexander the Great shows up, and you're going to surrender Jerusalem to him, and now... You know, you're acknowledging you're part of the Greek Empire at that point. Um, Well, how do you communicate to him the revelation that God has given your people? Well, somewhere along the line, you're going to have to translate it. Most translations were done orally. That is, I took my Hebrew Bible, read out of it, and spoke it in Greek. But that's still a translation. So I'm reading the Hebrew, telling it to them in Greek, read the Hebrew, tell it to them in Greek, um, and that's how it was communicated for many years. Uh, and, but we need translators. Then along the way somewhere, um, we're also going to <laughs> uh, need those that will... Um, how should I communicate this? Um, I'm going to call them identifiers. And identifiers could be much earlier, way up here, before the copyists even. They could be in here between the copyists and the translators. They could be after the translators. That's why I struggle where to put this in here. Um, What do I mean by identifiers? These are people who will say and communicate, and it's not just one person but a body of people that will say, this is God's word. This is more than just human writing. This is something with authority. This is something that that we need to be attentive to. This is something we need to see preserved. We need to be obedient to. We need to recognize that this ultimately comes from God and that it is inspired. At some point, we need someone or some group of someones, more than likely, uh, to communicate that to us, uh, or it should be evident to the body of saints, this is something we need to lay hold of, especially when within the text it says, thus says the Lord. Correct? So we need to have somebody to, or people, to be involved in that process as well. Now, um, and then of course, we're going to have to have those that will distribute God's Word to get it to you. But it's not to your ear. That's just a written thing. Now, to get it to your ear, you're going to need some other individuals. You're going to need some... I'm going to put these off to the side a little bit because they're really not about your written scripture, but you're going to need teachers. Someone to teach you God's Word, which means... You're going to need before them interpreters. Interpreters, teachers. What does the Bible mean when it says this? And those are going to be in this process of getting it really to your, really to your lap as well um, and to your ear. The fact is, is that if it weren't for the teachers of God's word and their writings, much of our scripture would not be in your Bible today. A lot of the basis for whether this is in the Bible or not is because somebody in the first or second century said this is and quoted from it and identified it that the early church knew it to be. And so identifiers and teachers were early on, um, and even interpreters as well, um, does this sound like? And then, of course, in our modern area, we have way down here textual critics who will go back and try to evaluate all the manuscripts available and the stylists and language and all of that to try to figure out, again, try to fulfill this role of identifying what is and is not scripture. So this is the process. These are the people involved. Now, my question for you tonight, and I do want you to interact with me on a lot of these. My question for you tonight is, the, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. That is, it is God-breathed. That is, what is written is God-breathed. But Peter does say that these holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, we look at this and we say, well, where does inspiration occur? Where does it require inspiration for us to get a text complete for us? And so, we, when we talk about the holy men of God that, that spoke, they, that God said, thus says the Lord, they went out and said, thus says the Lord, They spoke, sometimes they wrote, um, but they received God's word. And so in in 2 Timothy, we have this declaration, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. My question is, who in this list, uh, where does that stop? Where does inspiration begin and end? And do we need inspiration to translate? Um, and we have a term in the process called re-inspiration. And I don't know of anyone personally that ever believed in re-inspiration. That is that somehow the translators had to be inspired by God in order to provide us a accurate translation from one language to another. But there is the term out there and the idea out there that the translators are inspired. Or that what they wrote is inspired. Because technically it's the writing that's inspired and not the people. Um, and so the inspiration occurs. Where does it occur? Well, then um, this is why the role of scribes. Would you all say, obviously we recognize the authors need to be, have what they say has to be inspired. Right? What they write, what the author wrote or said, has to be inspired. So we recognize right away, inspiration must be at this level. So that what he said is inspiration. So let's go to our example from this morning in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter eighteen started off with God saying to Jeremiah, "Go to this place, watch this guy, and then go and speak these words to the people." Okay. So that is God's word. And then the next thing we find is the people's response. Who spoke those words? Who authored them? The people did. They spoke them, someone wrote them down. Whether it was Jeremiah or a scribe, someone wrote that down. What we have is an accurate reporting of what they said. But what those people said was not itself inspiration. So there are times that the author isn't under inspiration, but it is the scribe. And then we have a lengthy section of verses that is Jeremiah's prayer, correct? Where Jeremiah turns to God. And certainly we see, well, here's a holy man of God, and he is moved to pray these prayers, but they are his prayers, to God for his personal protection as well as a declaration of what he has done. And we have that interaction throughout Jeremiah. And we have this record of his prayer. And we can go in and say, well, is the prayer an inspired prayer or is the record of the prayer inspired? You might say, well, what's the difference, Pastor? One, it makes it authoritative, which is the way I preach. So you already know where I stand. And the other, says, well, I just have a faithful record of what Jeremiah prayed for himself, but that his prayer was a selfish one. And we have a lot of records like that in the Bible, right? We have a lot of records of people saying things that aren't true. And we don't think, well, they're inspired because they authored that declaration. No, we say, well, that's a faithful record of what they said, and so we know that's what they did, in fact, say. So technically, you could say, well, they authored those words, but we have God inspiring his scribes, his writers. And so my contention would be that inspiration, since it applies to the writing and not to the person, also needs to apply to the scribes that were involved, that they needed to have the right words written down, That they heard, that inspiration needs to be there. Now many times the author and the scribe are the same person. But there are instances where they are not. And this isn't rare, this isn't a rare incidence where they're not. And so when it talks about holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and then we come back and we find that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and then we find Jesus saying, well not even one jot or tittle can fail all fulfilled, I mean, he's getting down to the the pen strokes, he's saying, are authoritative. And the means of that is the inspiration here. And so you'll hear us in our doctoral statements declare, and by the way, um, this King James only guy has a real issue with that, with this declaration, this guy and others like him, when we say that the inspiration. The original manuscripts are inspired. What are we saying? The original writing. Okay? And the word original, by the way, is is abused in the translation process. We're going to deal with that later down the road. Um, What we are saying, when we say the original manuscripts are inspired, we are saying that inspiration ends there. That is essentially what we're saying. And these people that are King James only, they, they vehemently speak against that. No, the Bible you have on your lap is the inspired word of God if it's the King James 16.11. It is the inspired word of God. And they believe that inspiration really, not that there is re-inspiration, but it persists Because the scriptures carry it with them and have effect upon all along the way. So that each one, as they do their job, what is produced by them is inspired. The problem is, what if it's different? And this is the dilemma. That the King James only just rectify by saying, no, there's just one for English. That's it. We're done. And so we're going to... uh, Press it a little bit and say, "Well, what about copyists? Do copyists make mistakes? We're going to do this. Um, if not next week, the week after, we're going to actually have you become copyists. I want to test and see how accurate you can be. Um, how many we can get? You know, like if we did it tonight, we'd have ten generations. We're going to have each of you represent a generation. You're going to have to copy it and hand your copy over to the next person who's going to copy and hand their copy to the next person and." we're going to see how it does. How does the copyist work? Well, are they inspired? Is what they copy down inspired? And what if they leave a little bit out? What if they misalign? What if there's something in there the copyist doesn't feel comfortable with and just says, well, I could just drop that. And that's our example tonight. I'll just drop that. That can't be right. And so we have, we're going to struggle with, are the copyists inspired? And if not, which is what our doctoral statement says, then we have some issues to be introduced here. Translators, do they need to be inspired? Are they inspired? Well, we say the original manuscripts. And so our contention is that there is a different work of the Holy Spirit called preservation that is involved among these people, even to the distribution. And there is a totally third work of the Holy Spirit when we get to the teaching and interpreting of it that we um, refer to as illumination or unction, oiliness. <laughs> Make it oily. Um, and so we're going to be referring to those throughout the saints. So this is kind of an overlay. And this is what we're going to be struggling with, is the practical thing. We're going to start the Old Testament. Um, and I'm going to give you an Old Testament example right now because my time is pretty much up. Uh, we're going to start in the Old Testament, which means we're not going to start with your Old Testament. Where do we have to start if we're going to talk about the Old Testament? We've got to go to the Jewish traditions. So we got to get out of Christianity altogether because there was an Old Testament before there was ever the church in terms of the church age, New Testament, and all that period. So we have to go back into that period of time, uh, and that's an area in terms of how did the Jews decide what was Scripture? How did they determine? What did they quote from? What did they believe Scripture to be entail? What was their canon? Do you know? Do you know what's in a Jewish Bible? Which books are in the Jewish Bible Today? Where did they get their Bible from? What's their view on preservation and inspiration? Because the whole Old Testament we inherited from them. So do you know? That's what we're going to try to study out. So let's just take our one example tonight. And this is going to set you off a little bit, but that's okay. And you can run home and study it up and see if it's very accurate. Um, I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis. Let's just start right off in Genesis. Whoops. We're going to go to the genealogy after the flood. We're going to go to chapter 11. After Babel even, we're going to pick up on one genealogy, and that is Shem. The line of Shem, righteous line of Shem. And so, I'm going to take you a little bit farther along, because there's an interesting verse here that we need to address very um, carefully. Well, let's just read it. Verse 10, it says, this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad, Arfaxad, two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. And after he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ryu. After he begot Ryu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Sarug, Ryu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. and He begot Terah. Nahor lived 119 daughter, nineteen daughters, 19 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, let's just look at Naran, jump down to verse 28. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now that's a weird verse to have in there. This guy died before his father. Well, why is that weird? Because really in this whole line of Shem, it is the first time it's happened. Oh, but wait a minute. Shem outlived not only his son, but his grandson, based upon the years given to us here. And so the question is if Shem outlives both his son and his grandson, why is it such a big deal that Haran dies before his father? Because apparently, our fox died before his father, and, and uh, Salah died before his grandfather. And right down through the list. And so we have a dilemma. We have this identification. And by the way, um, these dilemmas call us to um, some action. We have to make a decision. Either we're going to explain it away in the text somehow, or we are going to ignore it, or maybe do some research and see what's out there. And... Um, In another copy of the Old Testament, in fact, in the very oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have, which isn't in Hebrew, does that surprise you? The oldest copy of the Old Testament is not in Hebrew, that we possess. The oldest copy that we have access to today in Hebrew is, I'm sorry, The oldest copy of the Old Testament we have today is in Greek. Called the Septuagint. We'll explain the Septuagint later on. And so in the Greek Orthodox Church, they have no problem with this passage because Shem did not outlive his kid nor his grandkid. um, And it also solves another problem for us. And that is that for six generations listed there in the Septuagint, Six generations, including our fox, our our foxod, is that his name? Our foxod. um, There is an extra hundred years for each generation. There are six ones in the Septuagint that aren't in your Bible. That in verse 12, our foxod lived. 35 years. In the Septuagint, it says that he lived 135 years and begot his first kid. And that's true for all six. All these six generations take their number of when they had their kid and add 100 years. Because each one of them lived that long. So read them off for me real quick. I know I'm way over time, but that's okay. The next one is Salah. He lived. 30 years, verse 14, should be 130, according to the Septuagint. You go down to Eber, Eber lived 34 years, should be 134 years. Um, you go down to Peleg, and 30 years should be 130. Um, and then you go down to who's after Peleg Ru? 32 should be 132. And then you get down to Sarug, 130 should be 32 should be 132. What did this just do? First of all, it solved an internal problem of why is it so important that this person be mentioned that he died before his father when obviously it already happened? Well, now that's not true because now Shem did die before his kids. He did not outlive them because they lived 100 years longer than we thought. And this kid is, the grandchild is 200 years farther than we thought. So, he didn't outlive them. So, it solves the internal problem. It also solves one very important external problem. The external problem that it solves is in archaeology. And I'm not a, this isn't a reason to change your Bible, but this is something that is beneficial. What is the archaeological problem? What have we just. Added to the chronology of the world 600 years. 600 years, we back up the flood. Remember, this is all the two years after the flood. Well, now 137 years after the flood, we've just added 600 years between us and the flood. Why is that important? Because archaeologically, there are several massive structures that were built right about this time period, specifically the Great Pyramid. And if we remove these hundreds, we have the Great Pyramid archaeologically built before the flood. With them, the Great Pyramid is built after the flood. That was one of the areas archaeologists have taken issue with your Bible, but they can't take issue with the Septuagint, because there's enough years for it to happen now, because they have pretty much isolated the, that down to um, a date within these 600 years. And so the oldest copy of God's Word that we have of the Old Testament isn't in Hebrew, it is in Greek. And if you go to a Greek Orthodox church today, they will not use your Old Testament, they will use the Septuagint. And in their Bibles, it is 135, 130, 134, 130, 132, 130, and they have 600 extra years. And don't you feel ripped off that you've been lost 600 years all this time? We've had to explain that verse and we've had to muddle through with trying to figure out some archaeology problems. Now we just have an extra 600 years. Now, how did the 100 years get lost? That's what we're going to talk about next week. You do your research, see. Um, Most of you don't have access to the Septuagint. um, But, uh, well, you do because you have your computer. So you have full access to it. And uh, this is a factual, does this change your theology? No. But what do these 600 years do for us? Am I here to make you say, oh, I can't trust my Bible? No. What does these 600 years do for us? It puts us in a much stronger position to advance that God's word is true to itself and to what we see around us. What is being determined and discovered. And um, the second point is not the major one. The major one is the first point. And uh, this is just a little number that we're going to deal with. Um, this is very kind of slight. And a lot of the issues I'm going to bring to our are numbers early on. I'm just going to give you some of the, the numerical issues that we deal with with the Old Testament and the variation between what's in your Bible and what's in a Greek Orthodox Bible, for example. Okay, so I'm going to challenge this a little bit, but I want us to understand the prosy and what is involved so that we have a better handle and can explain why we trust our Bible so much. Okay, Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And we pray that as we look into its history and how you brought it to us, that we might Uh, not only recognize that you have been very involved in bringing it to us uh, intact uh, over the centuries, but that, more importantly, uh, it demands our attention to obey. And in there we find your truth, uh, pointing to your Son, Jesus Christ, and help us never to lose track of that in the midst of our study. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.